Mad Beef is kept going and growing by generous support from Skater HQ. Bill and the team have been heavily involved in the inline skating community since 1991 and continue to support competitions, skaters, and now a podcast. You can visit Skater HQ at one of their Sydney shops or shop online at skaterhq.com.au. Also, big thanks to our Patreon supporters. It really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, find us on Patreon and pledge a monthly contribution. Even just $2 a month would be a huge encouragement. Beef, the Australian Rollerblading Podcast. I'm Mikey Lynch, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Frank Stoner, long-term blader and um, rollerblading intellectual, about um, talent as a form of currency in the skating community, um, about the influence of social media um, and its connections to Roman Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation, amongst other things. It's a weird, deep, rambly conversation that you might either find interesting or infuriating or a little bit of both. Uh, I don't know. But for those of you for whom this is your cup of tea, I hope you enjoy. Hey, Frank. How you going? Oh, good, yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, doing all right, man. It's been a while between conversations. It has been. What is it now? Almost, uh, well, almost my winter, your summer. Um, yeah, it hasn't felt like it. It's still snowing here in Colorado. It rained just a minute ago, and we're glad not to have had it be snow, but <clears throat> it snowed last week twice. Oh, man. Wow. That late. Yeah, it's late. Who knows what's going on these days with the weather? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and your year's kicked off all right? Uh, yeah, New Year was fine. It, oh, that feels like ages ago. Was that yeah. even this year? Oh, I meant not just New Year, but like your year as a whole. Yeah, it's it's you know it's, it's going well. Um, yeah, it's been busy. It's mm. been very, very busy, busier than the years previous. But you know, yeah, everything's been good. Uh, I haven't had as much time skating over at Luke's house as I would like, uh, but um, and mainly because the weather has been crappy. Yeah, Is but that, that's um, the big mini ramp. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, well. Well, hopefully you'll get some good, clear summer weather and some, I don't know, some, some break from the busyness to a... Yeah, to I'm hoping that so. Problem. I'm hoping so. So what you got for us today? You, you said you're keen to talk. Uh, you wanted, uh, you sent me th- uh, like this reference to uh, uh, Loginus on the Sublime, and I must admit, I, with all the good intentions in the world, it's um, uh, apart from scanning the table of contents, I just haven't gotten to actually reading any of it. But you're thinking about how this speaks to how we might best sp- think about rollerblading. Yeah, so it's a Roman guy. He's called Longinus. Is how I say it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how other people say it. Everybody in in school I ever heard talk about him talked about it that way. Yep. The um, backstory is that he was a Roman uh, rhetorician, which was a bigger deal then than it is now. Now you would think of a rhetorician as like a talking head on TV. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, it was a, a more like a philosopher uh, kind of a role for society. Anyway. Uh, It's not totally clear whether he himself was the author of that treatise, but it's believed that he was the author of that treatise. Um, More of this has to do with 
<laughs> the Protestant Reformation, then it has to do with Longinus, but Longinus is what lets me connect to the Protestant Reformation. So I figure if there's any man in the world to talk to, you're the, you're you're my man. All right. To connect rollerblading to the Protestant Reformation. Let's do this. Okay. So uh, the beginning. So there's a bit of sort of exposition that has to happen uh, in order for me to get to it. So I'll do the best I can to keep it uh, not as a shaggy dog story. All right. Um, so a while ago, uh, I guess about last summer or so, I put out a mini ramp edit of me skating at Luke's mini ramp. And I wrote an article about it talking about how, uh, my goal really is to put together an edit and do some skating and do some tricks, do some stuff. And then in a year of having access to the ramp, put out another one and see if I've gotten better, see if I've lost weight, see if I've got healthier, Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, that article ran in BMAG. Yeah, and the article the article was really just me saying, you know, I feel fat. I feel like I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm obviously not as good as I used to be. I'm almost 20 years older than I used to be. I'm solid 75 pounds heavier and fatter than I used to be and so on and so forth. And anyway, the article was just saying, you know, basically here's this video. You know, here's me skating. And... <clears throat> The, the first comment that I got on that on the YouTube channel was um, a guy saying, wow, you're really good. Uh, after I read the article, I thought you were going to be crap, but it turns out you're really good. And then he said, he, I think he may have messaged me privately or something like that and said, I'd heard you on podcasts and things, and I had no idea that you were good at skating. And so I would, I'm really going to you know, take a second look at all of your articles. Hmm. And that is a kind of a strange thing uh, for me because most of the people who know me have known me this whole time uh, and uh, knew me when I was good at skating back in the day. And uh, anyway, it just, for a very long time, I've had this strange problem with understanding ability in... Bummer. Oh man! All right, I've changed location now. Let's see if this makes any difference. Uh, <laughs> and 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 uh, God willing, it's going to work now. So, uh, screen recording still going. Oh man, it's uh, frustrating to do that as well, isn't it? Because you get on a roll. So, change location. Let's see how we go. So, where I was up to was uh, people had known you skating the whole time. You know, but then realizing that then someone else who's watching you, hearing you as a talker and a writer, suddenly sees you skate, and you you cut out around the time of the change connection that the strange connection between ability and um, and then you, then I lost you. Okay, okay. So I hadn't said anything about Lawrence. No. Nah. <laughs> wow. So you were gone for a while. Yeah, yeah. I just I need to pay more attention to this other screen because now I've got three computers in front of me and I'm having to wow. get all the different stuff. Well, thank anyway, let's, let's, it's going to work now. It's gonna, definitely going to work now. I believe so, and I'll keep an eye on the screen. Yep, all right. Okay, so what, what that 
what, what, what's, what's interesting to me is the idea, and I've, and I've kind of felt this for a long time, that like talent. Ah, you've gone again. Yeah, man, we're now on my, <laughs> we're now on my phone network, and um, and we're up to still talent. <laughs> the strange connection between talent and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to. I mean, we go, all we can do is try one more time, I reckon. Then after that, I I, I don't know. I guess we can can retry in an entirely different location and time. But let's let's give this a shot. All right, we're on my phone network. We're not relying on any Wi-Fi stuff. Um, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Over to you, man. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, the idea the idea is that talent in rollerblading uh, is a is a kind of a currency within the community, and it's a special kind of uh, like social currency, where the better you are, the more people want to listen to you. The better you are at skating, the more people want to listen to your ideas and opinions. Yeah. And I think that that has largely been true with mushroom blading. Uh, but I would I would say that it's like a it's like a different kind of currency. It's like you know dollars to euros or to Australian dollars or to Canadian dollars or to whatever. Yep. Uh, with those guys, but it still sort of fits into an economic model. But the problem that I've had is trying to account for how does law fit into all this, right? Mm. Because he self describes as being an average blader, and he goes out and he's like. You know, doing Mizu and doing, you know, topsoil on the mini ramp and learning how to do stuff again and so on and so forth. And yet he still has this tremendous social currency where all kinds of people chime into his live broadcast, the gear talk. Um, he's got a whole forum, a whole online community going and all that kind of stuff. And that really just doesn't fit the model, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so... I've been I've been really trying to double down because I'm thinking I'm, this year I'm going to Cameron's event. What year is it? Up in Pennsylvania yeah. uh, at, at Woodward uh, East, um, and I've been thinking, well, gosh, you know, if, if I'm going to be there and all these rollerbladers are going to be there, I want to make sure that I can skate well and represent myself well, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And you also want to be the best you can be, just so you can have the most fun. I yeah. think, you know, if you go and miss soul grinds all day for a whole weekend, it's just going to not be very much fun. Whereas if you skate well, you're going to have more fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, though, so 
the the metaphor of a currency, whether it's you know dollars to euros or or American dollars to Australian dollars or whatever, uh, that model just fails when you look at somebody like Lawrence, yeah. because he's not the best guy on the internet, and yet he's got probably the most social currency of anybody, and. He's starting up all these old companies and stuff, and he's got this like mini empire going. <laughs> and the currency model just doesn't fit. So I'm thinking, what is <clears throat> what is a better <clears throat> sorry, what is a better metaphor for what's going on in rollerblading than using a currency model that suggests that the more talent you have, you know, the more people listen, and that that sort of wealth-based or currency-based metaphor just really, really failed for me. And I've been trying, trying for like weeks and weeks to try to figure out what is the, uh, what's a better metaphor for this. And I remembered reading Longinus in graduate school, and he makes a couple of points that uh, he's mainly talking about the, the, Proximity to the sublime is the proximity to the uh, divine. Right. He doesn't say it quite that way, but when you do really good speeches or you are able to get your message across really well or you're able to persuade people or you're able to speak very eloquently, you know, if they're, you know, the, the divine didn't make us to be lousy. The divine made us to be at our best. At least that's what he believes. And yeah. he was a polytheist, if he was a theist at all. Anyway, I started thinking, it's like religion. And it's particularly like the Catholics in the, whatever, 16th century, uh, getting, you know, having Martin Luther turn up and say, you know, it's, it's not faith in good works. You don't buy indulgences. You do it through faith. And, yeah. and only faith. Um, and the more I started connecting these things, the more it sounds, it sounds totally spot on because what Luther did, similar to what Lawrence has done, is to, is to say that, you know, you don't need all these bishops and all these priests and all these people, you know, saying, hey, you know, tell me what's wrong and I'll go tell God and he'll tell me what to tell you to do, where, you know, the, the priesthood is like this kind of middleman in the way of the people having a direct relationship with the divine. And so uh, what's occurring to me is the kind of outreach that Lawrence is doing is saying, yeah, you don't need to do full cab true fish down a kink rail to experience the divine, to experience the sublime. What you need to do is get out there and skate and have fun however you however you do that. And if a one one wheel roll is what you're up to, then let that be it. Let that be adequate. Let that be, you know, your your distance to the sublime without a middleman. And the more I think about this sort of architecture of a, of a religion-based, or at least a Christian medieval religion-based metaphor for rollerblading, it makes perfect sense that these kinds of changes would occur um, with the Internet. You know, because everything that occurred in the church at the Protestant Reformation occurred right when the printing press hit the hit the main mainstream. Yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so that's that's maybe that's that's maybe like the thirty thousand foot view. What do you what do you make of that? What I just said. It's fun. Um, I, I'm now getting an echo. I'm not sure if you're getting the echo on your side as well. I'm not. Mm, okay. Well, hopefully that doesn't come down too bad in the recording. Um, so thoughts are, um, I, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've I've always felt, and I wonder whether it's true in a lot of places where there are. I mean, even going back to the currency thing, there are different kinds of currency beyond merely talent because not everyone who can play can coach or commentate well. Um, and so, you know, there's a recognition that there's a different kind of person who's the, who's the coach and the commentator, you know. I mean, in Australia, I, I assume it's an it's a American-English expression too, the idea of talking about someone with runs on the board um, as an idea of saying, you know, they, they have a right to tell others what's what because they've proved oh. proved their quality by their achievements, you know. They've got runs on the board. They've, they're not just a, a novice presuming to, you know, to say, you know, say the way things are. But, um, but I don't think that entirely works because there are people with runs on the board that aren't great coaches or aren't very insightful commentators. And, and, and I mean, the mushroom blading guys are, are good skaters, but, but they also, I, I mean, they just established themselves as well as innovators, articulate kind of folk philosophers, um, uh, you know, as as well, do you know what I mean? And, and, ex, and just experts, just with that encyclopedic knowledge of blading history and videos and people and tricks and so on. And, and so in a sense, you know, what was their currency? Was it fundamentally those guys could do a really stylish, um, you know, aggressive skating run if they needed to? Um, or really was it these other things, you know, the, the, the ability to innovate, the, um, uh, the, the infectious, charismatic personalities you know, the breadth of mind, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I guess that, that was a string of my thoughts, and I feel like that's all part of what Lawrence brings as well, right, is, um, uh, you know, there are, there's, there's other forms of currency than, expert, than expertise, you know, and, and so similarly he, he's more interesting to listen to um, and maybe more broad-based in his thinking and reflecting than perhaps someone who's amazing, which is what makes Jump Street stand out as very impressive as they're both, <laughs> both amazing skaters and also, you know, very articulate. Um, uh-huh. But even then, perhaps not quite as philosophically inclined as um, as Lawrence or the mushroom plating guys. So that, anyway, that's that's a whole package of stuff that's separate from your your line of thought. With your line of thought, yeah, it's fun to it it's fun to contemplate the. Um, uh, a priesthood of all believers for the, um, you know, which is one of Martin Luther's concepts, right? That, you know, the, the cobbler and the mother, you know, changing nappies, diapers, um, uh, as much as the priest or the monk um, can be doing a priestly duty and service to God in the everyday, um, you know, so also everybody um, participating in the culture uh, in whatever level is doing exactly the same kind of thing. Um, Mm, yeah, I don't know. Is that enough reaction for now? To, to you know, do you want to push back again or develop things further? Well, I mean, I just the more the more I kind of the more I kind of riff on it, the more I'm kind of thinking that because there's uh, in in the U.S. there's a uh, there's a monthly periodical called The Atlantic. Yeah, and uh, it's it's known for having you know good good writing and good long articles that go into great depth and. Uh, 
This month, they've got a guy called James Carroll, uh, who was a Catholic priest and left the priesthood. And he wrote, and he left the priesthood, I think, like 40 years ago. Uh, so he's not a young man. He's yeah. been involved with faith and with the church in various ways. Um, and, you know, with the Catholics, there's this celibacy thing that a lot of people don't like. But I think more than that, there's a kind of a, uh, a, a male dominance uh, that a lot of people attribute to going back to the kind of Adam and Eve story about, you know, women are the downfall of men and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the kind of patriarchy that he talks about in the in the priesthood and in the in the Catholic Church, um, he says needs to be abolished. And he goes to extraordinary lengths and writes like a, you know, dozens of pages long article about it. Yeah. And they gave it they, they gave it the four, you know, they gave it the cover. They gave it the main place in the magazine and all that stuff. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about these various kinds of gatekeepers within blading media as, uh, you know, being the bureaucracy that, that spoon feeds the masses, so to speak, and, and, and is a gatekeeper for the, the knowledge that circulates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's, I think that there's some, some good patterns to that, but I also think that at the same time, uh, you know, Instagram rollerblading is enormous now. And a lot of people who follow rollerblading and are rollerbladers only follow rollerblading on Instagram. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, this is a thing that was very, very far from existing in 1995 when rollerblading sort of kicked off. Um, and it the, the parallel with the, the Protestant Reformation just kind of, kind of makes me think, you know, this similar kind of thing is going on where you had, you know, the Catholic Church and then you had the, what well, what I call the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox Church. Yeah. And sort of, and that was like the only schism in Christianity. And then following the, you know, Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, you get, I don't know, I don't even know how many sort of subdivisions of Christianity there are, but I would bet well in their hundreds. Yeah, easily. Yeah, I mean, one of the theories, I don't know if you've come across this, but one of the theories about why, I mean, it's changing a bit now, but for a long time uh, the United States was this weird um, anomaly uh, to the theory that said, um, you know, modernization leads to secularization because here you have this massive, uh, you know, first world um, power in the United States that is, you know, astonishingly religious compared to, say, like, you know, um, Northern Europe or, or something like this. Um, yeah. But one of the theories for it was, um, you know, ex explanations for it was the um, was free market religion, that by actually separating church from state, um, the history of the United States became a history of, um, uh, rather than state churches that uh, had a tendency to become stale, Instead, it, you know, a free market for religion actually enabled religion to thrive in a way that it uh, it didn't in other first world countries, um, which is an interesting thought. That's, that is a very interesting thought. Yeah. The, the 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 throwback to the economic model of calling it free market religion or whatever mm. it kind of sends a chill down my back, to be honest with you. <laughs> Well, I guess it's. The, I mean, that's a thing where, um, you know, I mean, the economy itself 
refers to something bigger than finance, right? Like it's it's right. all, it's the interchange of all sorts of uh, potential goods and benefits, um, you know. And so, an economic model is you know not necessarily a, f- a model about dollars, but also a model about you know, like you said, the currency of of talent is one, or um, uh, or knowledge is another, or social position is another, or um, um, uh, yeah. And so, in a sense, it, it, there is something helpful about saying. Uh, a church with absolutely, or a religion, or a, or a subculture with absolutely no willingness to flex, adjust, change, adapt, um, is is should rightly not be bolstered up forever by you know uh, by some kind of protectionist um, kind of policy, but but should f- be confronted with um, the consequences of, of failing to adjust and change and pivot. To some extent, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to, to sort of, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try to keep pushing it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Because the other thing, the other thing that I get is, uh, you know, with the with the Reformation, you know, the the Catholics had a Counter Reformation where they just doubled down on everything that they had always said. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like uh, I don't know how familiar you are with like the Vatican II Council and that kind of thing in the Catholic Church, but. You know, in the in the post-war era, they had this. Uh, it was Pope. Oh crap! What Pope was it? John Paul II, yes. wasn't it? John Paul II. Yep, absolutely. So you are on on your game with this, though. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they they had the Second Vatican Council, and they they you know did all kinds of major changes to the to the to the dogma, uh, including you know fully sanctioning the idea of you know, individual churches aren't going to do Latin anymore. They can do whatever the vernacular is in that country. So you yeah. can do it in German in Germany and in English in America and in, you know, English in Australia and, you know, in, in French in France and so on and so forth and in Cambodian and Cambodia and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and uh, it took, I don't know, 400 years for them to come around to that. Mm. <laughs> like literally. You know, literally. Yeah. And when I think about the blading media outlets, they're not running Instagram channels that put out clips all the time and curate things from the new media sources like Instagram or Snapchat or whatever the sort of kids these days are up to to sound like an old grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're still running print articles. We're still running... Uh, you know, regular video edits that come out on Vimeo or YouTube or whatever. Uh, and none of them have a podcast. You know, uh, One Magazine doesn't have a podcast. BMAG doesn't have a podcast. Uh, and it just kind of makes me feel like that's a throwback to that same parallel with the Catholic Counter-Reformation, that we're, we don't change anything. We just double down on what we were doing before and then invent the Inquisition. Apparently, Manuel Manuel Belarus put up a post. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that you saw it in the last day or so. No, railing a couple of people in particular, talking about you know being frustrated with I don't know whatever kind of inside baseball or arguments happening between them. Yeah. Where that where that article go up? What's that? Where did he post that? Uh, he just posted it to Facebook. On his own profile? Yeah, it was just like a Facebook rant saying, 
you know, naming a couple of people off and saying, you, you and you, screw you guys. Mm. And I don't even, I, I don't know where the debate went down, if it was on Instagram or somewhere else. Mm. Um, but it's just interesting to me that the, that the blading outlets, of which I'm a part, I'm part of that sort of, you know, news bureaucratic media micro juggernaut thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a part of that machine and I'm still doing the regular articles when I do them. And it's not Instagram. It's not Snapchat. It's not these, although that guy, Kevin biz Thompson, he's doing the, this week in blade or whatever it's called, where it's yeah. like a sort of a news show deal. Yeah, yeah. And that seems new, but, and that's through, I guess that's through blader union. So maybe, maybe the blader union guys are more dynamic than the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also important though to um, uh, to, to work out when something is best done institutionally, or um, or when it's actually institutions do well to realise they're not best positioned to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense that I kind of go, I, I mean, like I this this last week I, I took a week off to try and do a big chunk of. of you know, research and writing towards a, a book I'm working on about the relationship between the church and what gets often called parachurches, which is all these things that aren't the church, ranging from religious orders through to, you know, university Christian fellowships or hospitals or schools or theological, co- all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and part of, you know, what I think inevitably has to be the case is that it's a healthy... Um, ecosystem involves both the establishment and the kind of ability to cope with things that aren't the establishment that kind of bring renewal and 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 so on you know like because in a sense you kind of go bmag doesn't have a podcast and then part of me goes yeah but i'm not even sure whether if they did their podcast would be the one i want to listen to anyway like whether in a sense the nature of a podcast um uh or instagram is the part of what's best it, a little bit like choosing mentoring or coaching that, you know, if you, if the institution assigns you a mentor or a coach, like, you know, like a PhD supervisor or something, you're stuck with who you're stuck with and they might be good, but uh, they might actually not be very helpful at all. In a sense, the best mentor or coach is the one that actually the, uh, the person who receives the mentoring or coaching chooses, you know, for best fit. Do you know what I mean? And so I wonder whether part of the thing is this new media, stuff is um yeah i mean the catholic church did that as well in the fact that it it recognized and endorsed like the franciscans you know so so here's this order that's so reacting against if you like the wealth and power of the established church by you know these you know kind of begging simplistic monks you know friars who you know remind uh, people that hang on a second, the Jesus of the Gospels is heaps different to the bishops and archbishops of the palaces of the church. And in a sense, there was something wise and helpful about uh, the church being open to receive those kinds of orders outside of the immediate church hierarchy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In some sense, perhaps what we do need to do is, you know, rather than say this stuff needs to be swallowed up, um, by the larger outlets or brands and instead just needs to there needs to be a kind of a a healthy give and take relationship between the two right 
Um, and I guess the worst thing is when the brands, those managing the brands, just get defensive and aggressive towards these outside voices. You shouldn't be saying this. You don't have all the facts. How dare you? Blah blah blah. Or um, or even, oh, why are you criticising? I've seen the way you skate. You're no good. To go back to that your your original jumping off point. In a sense, that's if you respond that way, you're missing missing the point. You know what I mean? And um, and if someone or like a, if a quote unquote pro dismisses a, a critic because oh they're not a good enough skater or whatever again they missed the point that that's not the world we're in anymore you know, <laughs> you know? did you by any chance happen to get that off of the or did you go and have a look at manuals page uh i tried and then can't see it there okay all right well several commentators none of whom that i saw were manual himself mm. um uh, had said similar things that, you know, you guys need to back off. He's 10 times the skater you were and so on and so forth. And it's like, oh, no, I don't even know about this debate, but, like, that's not a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so that comes back to, um, in a sense, it's more than currency then, isn't it? It's not saying that um, skill is currency. Skill uh, becomes a, um, like, a, a hierarchical, you know, uh, trump card or something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's like the biggest trump card. That like, well, I can do this and you can't, so therefore my idea must be right and your idea must be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that there's any number of things with, say, with Lawrence where I would disagree with, with his sort of assessment of what's going on when certain things happen. Like, I don't know, like, uh, I, I can't even, off the top of my head, I can't even think of an example, but, you know, I might disagree with him here and there, but I'm not going to go to him and say, well, you know, I can do this trick and you can't. Therefore, your idea about this other thing must be wrong. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, no, that's that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, the advantage of recognizing, I, I think, where it's useful, uh, recognizing it's not so much recognizing skill as recognizing different contexts. I think it is useful to say. Uh, you know, you, you don't know what the challenges are in terms of maintaining integrity in a state church in the Middle Ages. You know, it's, it's easy to criticise from the you know comfortable distance of the 21st century. Similarly, we don't know what the challenges are like to try to manage, manage a team of, uh, you know, team of skaters if you're a business that also has to meet the bottom line. Or we don't know what it's like to be a pro skating um I don't know, you know, all, all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. What it was like to be a pro skating in the pressures and the context of the late nineties, early two thousands, or you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that's that's useful to say, isn't it? Like that's a different thing, though. That's not saying, oh, I can do a better trick, therefore back off. But it's saying until you've been on the inside of this particular situation, you know, you should be slow to um. Uh, presume to, to judge as if you know the full picture. So, yeah, so so I don't I don't yeah I think that that's I think that that's a wise wise comment, um, and I and I don't necessarily think that um, yeah the the you know recognizing these different contexts that, that, that's absolutely the way to go, uh, and say but but that doesn't seem like that's the debate. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know people people go to Lawrence. And they want to know the backstory. They want to know, man, what was it like doing 50-50 back when, you know, all you had to do was stamp out grind plates and you could sell them for fifteen ninety nine everywhere in the world. 
you know, what was it like? How were y'all getting them made? How are you getting them made now? Is it the same manufacturer? Is it the same everything? And, you know, he's able to more or less just report the facts on, um, you know, yes, this is our same manufacturer. We literally, you know, we're still in their Rolodex. We called them and said, we'd like to place a new order, even though it's been 15 years. And they said, great, uh, we'll send you the samples and you can review them. And, you know, there's a lot of the neat stuff like that that has to do with inside of industry stuff that a lot of people are curious about. I mean, yeah. here in the U.S. in the 90s, um, in the mid-90s, right around the time that rollerblading was kicking off, um, my family got cable TV for the first time because we'd never had cable TV before that. Uh, and I remember watching the Discovery Channel and the Learning Channel, and they used to play this show, this Canadian show called How It's Made. Uh, and they would do everything from plywood to ice hockey skates to uh, like raw aluminum, you know, billets, you know, like everything you can imagine. And it's just fascinating to watch how things get made, how rollerblades get made, how hockey skates get made, how car engines get made, yeah. how screwdrivers, you know, cricket bats, like whatever you want. They had everything. Yeah. And I think that people just enjoy seeing the sort of back end of how it gets made. And I don't necessarily think that anybody's challenging Lawrence on that stuff. What's what's it's sort of a, a, a self-imposed problem where I'm saying, you know, I have this currency model. Um, like I used to go to parties and stuff and like, you know, there'd be Louis Zamora or somebody would be there and like he would tell a joke and it might not even be that funny. Of a joke, but like everyone would laugh just because that's the social guideline that like he's like well, there he is he's really right there there's Louis Zamora yeah you know and you just there's this weird social pressure to laugh at a joke that's like well that wasn't that funny if I'd said that nobody would have laughed oh yeah and it's I mean it's it's the same thing about you know depending on uh, I don't know Alex Broskow starts doing lots of plain old front sides again front sides are rad <laughs> all of a sudden um, you know, uh, someone does a one-foot trick without a grab. Uh, as long as it's the right person who does it, right. suddenly freestyle. Uh, right. <laughs> freestyle grinds are rad. Um, yeah, freestyle. Yeah. Uh, someone else does it, though, and it's just like, oh, it didn't grab, didn't count. Um, so. Right. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a parallel between Broskow doing a no-grab backslide or a no-grab Machio and Lawrence Ingram doing a no-grab Machio. You know, everybody's going to say to Lawrence, hey, man, learn how to skate. Yeah. But no one's going to dare say that to Alex. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, another question again, but I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's, it is a curious interplay between, like, style, and, I mean, I'm just scanning through the contents, it seems that the, that Leginus book is interested in kind of pointing out some of the actual stylistic markers of sublime things. Um, that's something you contemplated and written about as well. What are some of the marks of a sublime style when it comes to skating? Um, but that has an interesting tension point, whether in skating or in literature or a whole bunch of things, between that and – actually, I just had a fun idea. I'll tell you in a second. Um, between that and um, uh, and the fact that cultural artistic expression – isn't, you know, like pushes against being like a formal sport, you know, and, and that's the whole Lawrence mushroom blading sort of fun, play, enjoyment side of things. It's not really either or, right, in the sense that actually 
as mushroom blading or, or then someone takes that mushroom blading stuff and then brings it to a next level like Danny Beer has done and, and then shows actually how that plays back into formal style and, and creates new categories for formal style uh, in the same way that writers who might break a whole lot of Leginus' rules, um, as he set them out, actually create new forms of great persuasive writing by rule-breaking. Um, and it's interesting, actually, even some of the reading I did, I came across this whole tradition within um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity of the the holy fool who would um, not just kind of behave in strict monastic ways, but would actually just flout social convention and be quite weird and eccentric and inappropriate, like this famous guy, Simeon, uh, the fool, who would walk around with, like, dog's tails strapped to his belt and throw nuts at women in church and, and just be weird. And it became this whole accepted tradition within the Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition of, like, these people who would flout convention partly to mask their piety so as not just to be praised for their, you know, holiness um, and partly to kind of subvert, you know, the power of this world and the expectations of this world. Blah, all of that, you know, I guess which just means that, yeah, that in some ways, like, there can be something unsatisfying about a purely neat, perfect... I mean, we've chatted before about, you know, a, a Takeshi Yakusatoko run may actually be more formally perfect than a Joe Atkinson run or, um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, that kind of thing. Or a, a, a later era Dustin Latimer se- section might be less formally perfect than a, you know, Brian Aragorn section. And yet that's where, you know, formal technique, style rules don't capture everything, do they? No, yeah, yeah that, I, think that, that, yeah. I think that that's spot on. Yeah. Um, you do, yeah, you do get that. And I, I, I see that, I see that definitely with the, uh, with Joey and Todd where, um, you know, they, they are flouting those conventions all the time and saying, you know, hashtag double core, you know, and core this and core that and is this core and, you know, having this very meta discussion about things yep. in a way that kind of subverts the the powers that be. Um, but, it, you know, I guess that's interesting that you're, you're pointing out an example of a guy doing that within the strictures of a very... Uh, robustly formed hierarchical organization with, you know, I mean, they don't, the Eastern Orthodox church doesn't acknowledge the Pope. Is that the deal? That's right. They have patriarchs. Okay. And maybe that's more to the point. Like they call it like it really is. Who knows? But yeah. um, So I don't know. Maybe there are there are avenues where that that same kind of subversiveness can happen within the orthodoxy of rollerblading culture, mainstream rollerblading culture. I mean, I mean, maybe there's always versions of that because, like, Tudor courts had the kind of jester who'd be like really close to the king and be the one person until they got killed, the one person who'd enjoy a fair bit of freedom to be able to say what everyone else was thinking, but no one else was allowed to. Um, I think Protestant cultures sometimes there's a kind of there's a certain kind of evangelist who can be, you know, the Billy Sunday sort of um, bombastic, eccentric, again, slightly subverting of convention, but because of their kind of spiritual unction, they're they're forgiven in a way that your average minister or deacon or Christian 
you know, might not get away with, you know what I mean? And, and so they, they kind of yeah. can be almost like that Protestant version of the jester or the holy fool. Um, and so in a sense, maybe that's what we've got, you know, the mushroom blading are, uh, become holy fools in that way. Um, yeah. But then, then there's something else again, which is the um, celebrating of the, the, the layman uh, who actually has a different kind of um, insight again, right? So, you know, Lawrence, by being ordinary, has a different kind of authority to, um, uh, to the expert, um, in the same way, I guess, that American presidential candidates can sometimes dumb, them, dumb themselves down to make themselves the average Joe as well. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, just, I just had a thought, and it just, it just ran out of my mind like a bird out a window. Um, what was I about to say? Um, oh, so, what, what, yeah, one thing that does occur to me, though, is the kind of orthodoxy of placing... Uh, aggressive inline skating as sort of the top tiers, the most difficult, the most dangerous, you know, iteration of of the of the activity where it's it's not roller hockey, it's not speed skating. You know, we're jumping off of stuff and we're skating on ramps and we're skating in parks and bowls and rails and so on. Where I think a lot of rollerbladers probably imagine, uh, you know or aggressive skating as the sort of ultimate in rollerblading or yeah. in inline skating. Um, and yet more and more people are going to distance skating. Even aggressive skaters uh, are going to distance skating and urban skating and uh, much more kinds of freeform, freestyle kinds of skating. And that, that to me just sort of speaks to the kind of um, – I don't know what you would call it, the kind of diaspora of Christianity <clears throat> away from the Catholic Church and into a kind of, um, what were you calling it, para-religion? Para yeah, para-church, yeah. In a, yeah, in a more kind of para-church kind of way where um, mushroom blading would never have been acceptable in the 90s as being orthodoxy for aggressive rollerblading. And now it's just another one of 20 different ways you can go out and enjoy yourself on rollerblades that seem to be becoming more and more acceptable. Yeah. And so I guess it's not only the currency thing with, with accounting for Lawrence, it's also accounting for this sort of, um, I don't know how else to put it, but diaspora, that there used yeah. to be one and now there's, or, you know, a couple you know, there's speed skating, fitness skating, you know, uh, and now it seems like there's there's 20 different kinds of skating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, what was the, I had another thought like your thought that's maybe flown out alongside it, and it was, go back a bit, yes, bro. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, part of what's, Again, kind of using these, all these different weird analogies with church and reformation. So one of the things, right, is that there was this whole stream within kind of ascetics and monks and monasticism where they'd achieved these extraordinary feats that had nothing to do with actual spirituality or holiness. Well, at least that's what the kind of Protestant reformers would say. They'd go, right, so you can, you know, you can go on this massive pilgrimage in bare feet, eating nothing but, you know, but beans. But, I mean, none of that's got 
like that's an extraordinary human feat, but it's got nothing to do with holiness, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, or you can, like, you know, Simeon Stylites sitting up top of a pillar for, you know, his entire life for 50, 60 years, you know, um, an extraordinary feat of endurance, but, you know, it's not as if, like, prayers prayed hungry on top of a pillar are more powerful from a Protestant point of view than prayers just prayed in the comfort of your living room. And, and the same way, some aspects of the hammer throwing, some aspects of them in the, um, in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, were more that. They were more standing on top of a pillar or, um, yeah. or free climbing, like where it's, it's not, in a sense, the thing that makes it extraordinary is not that it's hard, but it's just extremely dumbly dangerous. Like it's not that hard in a sense, or it's not harder to do the kind of whatever it's called, the leap of faith or, or something like that. It's just crazy stupid. Um, you know, like, I mean, that's not everything. Like a huge steep down rail doing a 540 kite and grind, that's, that's both very dangerous and very hard. Um, uh, I don't know, massive, um, <laughs> what's the Tide Cruise thing, massive, you know, f- Superman front flip. Um, oh, yeah, the, the, the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that. I mean, it's scary, um, but it's it's not extraordinarily hard. Do you kind of what I'm trying to capture there? And so, it, it's almost like we even need to separate apart hammer throwing into these two categories of, you know, what what was genuinely extraordinarily difficult and skillful. Do you know what I mean? Separating that from uh, what was both skillful and just bloody dangerous. You know, so there's that famous Broscow, what is it, 540 or something, through the gap in the fork in the tree. You know, some of these things that if they go wrong, they just go, you know, um, horrible <laughs> wrong. Right. You know. Um, right. Yeah, like you could die doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Like the Carlos Pinowski stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you could die doing that. I, I've always I, – I made a big point of that when I wrote an article when Lonnie put out Feet 3. And the distinction that I made there was saying it's the difference between can't and won't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think how I did that is a lot of that stuff, you know, the the big hammers and all that is stuff that you won't do. Yeah. It's not necessarily that you can't do; it's that you won't do it. Whereas the skating that I was seeing in feed three was much more like, you know, you can't actually do this. I mean, Alec, or what's his name? Uh, uh, John uh, or uh, uh, Chris Farmer. Mm. Chris Farmer did. Uh, what do you know what it's called? The negative wraparound acid, like citric <laughs> acid. Yeah. Alleyoop negative citric acid down a square twenty-five stair rail. And like, I just, I just couldn't do that. And I think that most people just couldn't do that. Like, yeah. our legs just won't bend that way. But. You know, when he does a Royale down uh, a 30-stair rail, like, well, yeah, all kinds of people can do that. And then you do something, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of tricks that it looked to me at that moment in time like skating was going from a a can't, um, or sorry, going from a won't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's helpful to have those distinctions. So there are some things that you go, I won't do, and I probably couldn't do it. You know that that, that you know, there are some things that are hard and super dangerous, um, uh, and there are some things that are uh, even, in a sense, the willing, the ability to overcome the fear factor is a kind of skill, but it's just a separate. It's not really. 
it's, yeah, it's just a feat of courage rather than a feat of skill. Um, and then there's some things which are, you know, as you say, to some extent, maybe even just um, biologically determined, like the degree of flexibility and um, hypermobility of joints and so on may well be a factor that you go, actually, even though that requires a lot of skill, it probably also requires a certain degree of hypermobility that makes it part skillful, part, you know, no offense to Chris Farmer at this point, but, you know, like circus freak light, if you know what I mean, like where it's how can they do that with their body, like those grinds where both you know, soul, you know, both on soul feet with your toes pointing in, grind. Like, oh, the, yeah, people mirror soul or closed book. Or something uh, like, I don't know why you'd want to do it, but I don't know how you could uh, <laughs> either. Um, you know, so, so that's almost another category again, which is not only not just can't skill, but can't just physically, <laughs> you know, which is another thing again. Yeah. yeah. So there's a string of factors in that, isn't there, and separating each of those out. And I think discovering that to go, actually, what's, what's essential to the sport and is the biggest, largest, most dangerous, actually in the end, definitively the most impressive and sublime, you know, to go back to the sublime thing, yeah. oh, well, it has a limit to it, um, uh, you know, both in the amount of times you can do it, but also it, to some extent it seems to me that... You, you reach a point where you go, there's, there's a limit to how long and how many kinks a rail can have before it can have another kink or one less, and it's negligible. Right. You know, similar, there's a point where I think, I don't know, you, hit, you have a 13, 14-foot vert ramp, and everything that can be done on that is actually, in the end, more long-term interesting than what can be done in these huge mega ramps, perhaps. Perhaps. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm trying to, you know? Um, yeah. Mm. That's that's interesting because you know I for years would watch people do nine hundreds and do nine hundreds myself and they just seem so like karate kicking fast that it didn't seem elegant and the way you know on a regular jump box in a regular skate park or like in an ASA or in a X Games or something like that you get yeah. the standard four five six seven foot high launch box with a platform that's, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet, and then a down bank or a down tranny or something like mm. that. Um, and, you know, you can slow roast a 540 over that and have it look really good, and you can really slow roast a, a 360 yeah. um, and have it look really good. But 900s, I always just thought, like, it's just, it, for the extra skill it takes to do the extra spins, it doesn't, it doesn't look graceful or elegant in any way. It looks like karate chopping madness <laughs> and whether you grab or not i mean yeah. you know even if you throw a grab in there somewhere like in my mind that's sort of irrelevant whereas in uh, whatever year that was 2012 maybe the whatever year the wrs video mm -hmm. contest was yeah i don't know um dave lang put out a edit of himself skating just the mega at woodward west yeah it was like a one minute like you, everybody can submit one minute edits and it could be street edit. It could be a single ramp. It could be whatever you want, but it's only one minute long. Um, and Dave Lang did his edit on the mega ramp at Woodward West. And he did a 900 over that thing over. I don't know if he did it over the long jump or the half jump, mm -hmm. but it's still at least 40, 45 feet, something like that, maybe more. Uh, and he did a 900 where he grabbed stale 
and was just slow roasted it the whole time. And it made me think, okay, you can slow roast a 900 if you've got 40 or 50 feet to go. Yeah, yeah. Where you just can't turn that slowly if you've only got 10 feet to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that there probably is more of a limit on the mega ramp stuff just because of how big and scary those things are. But, uh, you know, Jacob Barnes, who was the first inliner, he's an, well, he's an American now. He used to be an Australian, uh, from Brisbane and he is the first rollerblader to jump a mega ramp. Uh, and he always talked about it with this sort of Alice in Wonderland metaphor of, you have to go through the looking glass for that to not be scary. <laughs> I mean, yep. you're going 50 miles an hour at a launch ramp, <laughs> you know. I mean, the speed that you have to go to jump that far is outrageously fast. Yeah. And when you see people who are really good at bowls or really good at vert, you were talking about this in your last podcast about skating bowls. Yeah. About how uh, what, Scotty Crawford and some of those guys were uh-huh. hauling ass. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, they were every guy. single run. They were beginning kind of ten meter, not to ten feet. You know, so three, four meters back on the flat, yeah. and just just charging up before even jumping in. You know, the, yeah, very exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and you just you, you you get a sense of that's really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, way way back in the day, Ryan's lucky who is a friend of Dave Payne's, used to skate this bowl at Woodward called the Morton Bowl. And he was just doing front sides, but he could just zoom around the bowl and do these front sides. And it was all, you know, Senate wrench, you know, grind plates and all that back in the day. Yeah. And it made this terrific sound. Ah, delicious. Oh, so yep. fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, I think that there's probably a limit on the mega ramp stuff with just what you're able to do and how your wheels and how your equipment can handle you yep. know those kinds of speeds yeah uh, and how the body can handle that kind of speed i mean some of the mega ramp stuff that's happened on skateboards and scooters and bmx i mean it's pretty appalling to me to watch you know somebody slow roast a mctwist 25 feet out of a ramp i mean that to me just feels appalling um and yeah maybe so maybe there are limits why appalling uh, Uh, just because it's outrageously big. Yeah. So not appallingly bad, but just so shockingly startling to watch. Well, yeah, and also so slow turning. Yeah. I mean, if you've got 25 feet to go up and then 25 feet to come down, you barely have to turn at all to do a 540. Yeah. And, I mean, it doesn't look like a 540 that you might do uh, at coping uh, on a regular bowl or on a regular ramp. Yeah. Because you just, you spin so much quicker. Yeah, yeah. And it's like if you caught it out of the corner of your eye, you wouldn't even see that yeah. it's spinning at all. It's just because of how slow they're spinning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you might, you might just get totally out of control if you were to spin super fast, going, traveling that kind of a distance. Yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, I don't know whether there's. I'd be, uh, be curious to see whether that kind of spectacle skating uh, or biking or whatever sticks around or whether it'll sort of fizzle out. 
Well, there'll probably always be an element of it, but it does, yeah, it does. It brings that the, the extreme end of stuff to such an extreme that it's, um, it's a whole other thing going on psychologically for the person doing it as well as the person watching it, I think, you know, how close it becomes to uh, the ethical permissible limits of um, kind of Colosseum gladiators killing each other or watching snuff films or something. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like at what point you're really being, yeah, you know, really being struck with something that's that's beautifully spectacular and what point part of what's fascinating about it is this morbid transgressive thing. I don't know. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe maybe we can, maybe we can think more about uh, the, the, the Reformation deal because I feel like I'm close to having it. I feel yeah. like I, I feel like you're 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 less keen on it. I'm, I'm throwing a bunch of different things back at you, trying to you know. I guess that's always the case with an idea, is that you've grabbed something that's appealed to you and you're chasing it in one direction, and I'm sort of throwing a million other things back at you to see if that helps. I'm just I'm reacting in a way and going here's it makes me think of this makes me think of this makes me think of this you know seeing if that's helping you or <laughs> either back away from the idea or sharpen it up further. Um, well, I definitely appreciate that. That you're yeah. saying, well, yeah, you figured it out. We're done. <laughs> and then you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's definitely more fun to poke at it. Yeah, and I enjoy that. Um, I just, I just, I really, I just really have this deep feeling that the currency model. It just, it just doesn't do what I need it to do. It doesn't explain the things that I need to explain. And being a kind of a, I don't know, an auditor of religion, I guess, mm. is maybe a polite way to describe it. Um, not that I'm a critic. I don't know what my relationship is to religion these days, but, mm. um, you know, there's this enormous richness to this tremendous history of, of humanity and of organiza- organizing humans and organizing people and organizing faith in a way Yeah. where there's a lot of rollerblading that is just a kind of faith. We just <clears throat> believe that the companies <clears throat> are going to keep making wheels and we believe that the companies are going to keep doing things at least as well as they have been. Yeah. There's cert- and that our friends are going to still want to skate and that we're going to still want to skate. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I suppose I'm, I'm. I'm. Part of my pushback is going. How much really is skill ever? Has was it ever really the only currency? You know, how much was that ever the case? Um, okay. I guess it's part part of it. Um, and then going. So maybe in a sense, it's qualified agreement by going. I think things like the Reformation or like the a social media web 2.0 revolution. They um, they game changed to some extent, right? But there were still holders of power after the Protestant Reformation in Protestant countries. It got more diffuse in some ways, um, and it got thought about differently. But it didn't kind of abolish things entirely. And so, in the same way, uh, Lawrence has influence, but partly he is also a past founder and renewer. So past. Not, we wasn't sure if he was a founder of Fifty Fifty, but a past owner, and now reviver of Fifty Fifty, and someone located in the United States, not in um, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, if he's located in Scotland, would he have been as influential? Um, uh, and he's articulate and educated and wealthy and stable enough to be able to maintain the output that he's maintaining. 
Um, yeah. You know, so there's a, his contacts um, give him. Uh, yeah, so I watched a movie the other day um, that was all celebrating, you know, how music has been decentralised. We don't need record companies anymore. You know, it's called um, Begin Again with um, uh, who's in it? I can't remember now. Uh, Natalie Portman is the the singer who then gets discovered by an ageing musician, and then he helps her get a record deal. Then in the end, she throws the record deal away and says, "Nah, the internet can. I can just do it myself. Upload it and sell it for a cent." You know. Um, you know, all that kind of celebrating things. But in the end, she could do that. Even the character in the story could only do that because she did have industry connections through friendships and relationships who could retweet the link to her album. So the moral of the story is not actually anyone can do what that character can do, who needs record companies anymore. It is someone with enough relational currency, social currency, location and history can do it that way. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like it... Um, yeah, like someone who's already got other forms of um, social capital can do that, you know. Um, if Martin Luther wasn't located in Wittenberg, you know, but was instead, you know, again, located in the far-flung area of the, um, uh, you know, uh, the kind of Christendom, then he wouldn't have had the same influence as he had there. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So so I guess kind of going like it, uh, we... we the, the internet does get a reformation of kind and does allow enjoying rolling on any level as having more power than perhaps it might have. Um, yeah. I don't know if yeah. any of this is helping. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, kind of, the kind of superstardom that existed with your kind of Josh Petty type of people yeah. and before that with, you know, Arlo and to, to an extent, you know, Tom Fry and, and Manuel and the Australian guys there was a kind of a superstardom where when you were, when, when I was there and I was skating at Woodward or at ASAs and stuff like that, um, you know, one of those dudes would walk up with his skates in his backpack and like, it would literally hush the crowd. Like Elvis Presley just walked in the building. Yep. You know, let's see him skate. Let's see what he has to say. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of us were just kind of the hoi polloi. Um, and I don't know. I feel like one of the, one of the sort of, um, uh, consequences of, of rollerblading declining for such a long time, you know, you did that, that, uh, podcast a while ago about the causes of rollerblading dying or its decline or yep. whatever it was called. Um, you know, we, we really don't have superstars anymore. I mean, Haffy and a couple of other people, you know, Joe Atkinson, there's a handful of people who are kind of superstars, but they also aren't, they aren't really, they don't, they don't come to me come across as untouchable in the same way. Yeah. Where, you know, you rocked up to the session with the guys and, uh, you know, Scott Crawford was there and I don't know who else you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you described him as being like, you know, they were good, good lads. Like they were good chaps. They were good guys. They told jokes and it was fun and they seemed very human, you know, in, in scale. Whereas, you know, back in the day and even now, I mean, I was at, I was at uh, Keaton Newsom's funeral uh, about a year ago mm. and Arlo was there and like, People just won't talk to him. Yeah. Like, just he's just, you can't, you can't go talk to that guy. It just makes and me think else? of that bit out of Wayne's world, you know, where they go and see Alice Cooper backstage and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just stay, hang out with us, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
That, and, and look, in some ways that just happens, right? Scale, size and scale of the community at its height, it gets yeah. to a certain point and inevitably that almost unavoidably kind of happens. Um, and and as, the, as the culture shrinks in size and scale, the, the ability for it to create that same degree of mytholo- mythological uh, height, just it, we just don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah, I, I so I went to high school for uh, more was like a year and a half, um, just under two years. I went to high school in Madrid, Spain. Mm. My dad's job uh, required our family to move over there, and we did. And his company paid for me to go to school at a really fancy private school where, you know, we aren't particularly rich or particularly poor, but we could never have sent me to a school like that if his company hadn't paid for it. And all the other people that I went to school with were sons and daughters of bureaucrats and people in government, people in business, and they were all very fancy people. Um, But it was a really awesome school, and uh, we had really great relationships with our teachers, and it was similar to how universities work, where you have access or some access to your professors. Um, You know, you could go out and get a beer with these guys. You'd see them at the cafe, and you could talk to them. You know, and I remember I was I was hadn't been in Spain very long, and before the Euro, they were the Spain was on the peseta, and um, I remember having you know in, in outside of the U.S. I don't know how it is in Australia, but outside of the U.S., uh, a pocket full of change could be a lot of money. You could have twenty five dollars in a couple of coins, uh, and in the U.S., if you have coins, it's like well, it's basically trash. You can't buy anything for twenty five cents. You know. Yeah. And he, my, my math, my maths professor was there and he was saying, oh, hey, I'm a couple of pesetas short to use the phone. Do you have any coins in your pocket? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so I pulled out this giant fistful of coins and I just held it out to him. Like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. I've only been in this country for two weeks and started school. Take whatever you need to make your call because it's all Greek to me. I don't know what any of this shit is. Like, am I handing you a hundred dollars? Am I handing you like five P? Like, I don't know what I'm handing you, but I'm happy to help you make your phone call. Yeah. And he looked at this giant fistful of coins and was like, what do you think I'm trying to call the queen? Mm. And I remember being really upset by that, that. Like, why do you like, I get it that that's just an expression and it's probably just an expression and I'm reading too much into it. But like, the idea that it would cost more to call the queen really bothers me. Like back in the day when you had to use pay phones, like I need to call my mom. That's 25 cents. You know, I need to call my friend out of town. Well, that's a dollar. Okay. I understand that that costs more, but the idea that the monarch, you like you have to pay more to talk to the queen because you're using the phone just really, really bothered me. Yeah. And that, that kind of superstardom and rollerblading was the same kind of thing where, these are regular people. You should be able to talk to them. It should, they shouldn't be so untouchable that you can't talk to them. And it shouldn't cost extra to call them on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, um, that I mean, it came up in my attempt to podcast about the complexities around what kills a sport and brings it back, and it's something that I've heard Scott Crawford say a couple of times as well and a bunch of others, is um, increasingly just owning the – I mean, the way Scott puts it is something along the lines of it was a young sport that just didn't have the – have the depth and the base behind it it had was top heavy you know 
uh-huh. in terms of money's, money's incorporation without just the depth and breadth of a base. Um, and and I, I think there's something that, that's very enlightening and definitely does blow apart a lot of what I was trying to blow apart in that podcast of it being some simple cause effect, oh, it's just this, and that's it. That explains everything. Just going, no, there are larger forces at work. But I think that's a really useful one, that, that when there's a large, wide base, which is part of what this whole thing is discussing in terms of, um, you know, uh, the the priesthood of all believers of rollerblading, um, uh, yeah. companies, shops, professionals, everybody down the line has to recognise that, that um, you know, again, in a in a big regular sport like tennis or basketball, you just recognise that the local coach of the ordinary C division team owns basketball. He's a basketballer. He knows the basics of basketball. He can coach others to be better at basketball than they were before they got coached by him. And no no member of the whatever the Lakers or the Bulls can presume to come down and say, oh, you're not as good as me, therefore you can't coach. It's like... Yeah, I know I'm not, and I wasn't saying it was, but I'm better than these kids are. <laughs> and and even if none of us get ever even want to get paid or get a scholarship, we're still going to get we're going to be able, with our frame of reference, say we're a good team. We went from the C division to the B division, had a great time, and some of us will then pick it back up again after our kids grow up a little and play social basketball in our thirties and forties. And we own it; it's not yours. You have no right to say, you know, like beyond some basic things about rules and skills. You know, and, and I guess that's what happened, what it would be the case with surfing. You know, there would be no sense out in the waves that, um, you know, a pro could come out and go, oh, you can't do this kind of snapback carve on a, on, a, on a six-foot wave, therefore you have no right to say you're a surfer. Like there'd be people who surf at a pretty intermediate level for decades who actually can really say, I, I'm, a, I'm a veteran surfer, I, I know surfing and I own surfing. And that's the same thing, right? Like, you know, someone who's just who's skated, loves skating, knows skating, never surpasses an intermediate level. Uh, that would be true with skateboarding, BMXing, and I think increasingly it's, it's tr- that's part of the maturing our sport. There's just people who, who are at that level who fully know they have the right to own it um, and now as grown men feel that perhaps they could feel, a bunch of them could feel like if they did meet, a, you know, an Arlo Eisenberg or a Chris Edwards would just go, in the end, you're just a guy and it's a real honour to meet you and I want to tell you as another human being, thanks for what you've done for the sport, but that's just as a human, you were in the right place at the right time and you, right. you know, th- I think that's all a mark of that kind of deepening maturity, stability that, that gives confidence for a future to the sport that whole bunch of things. And I guess that does tie back to this reformational kind of concept of going all of that, you know, in the end, your laity, your, um, your average everyday people, you know, gives a strength to the whole um, right. that cannot be, you know, if all you're relying on is your the clericalism of experts and pros and media, you're going to be a pretty fragile, vulnerable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's an interesting point because a lot of the a lot of the sort of gripes that I've had about so many of our sort of senior statesmen disappearing, you know, guys like Scott Crawford and guys like Tom Fry uh, and other people who have just completely disappeared. Um, I mean, Tom Fry comes to mind. I don't know. I don't know if Tom skates anymore or not. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I haven't heard a peep out of Tom Fry. Yeah. Um, and so I just don't know. But, you know, obviously there are plenty of people who are our senior statesmen and they left and we lost a giant amount of institutional memory by losing access to those people. Um, and a lot of what I've 
done in talking to some of the sort of blade history kinds of things. Um, you know, reaching out to Jason Marshall when I wrote that article about the, you know, Ali Topsell. Yep. Uh, and reaching out to Dave Kolosh and Dave Payne. And uh, I've reached out to Chris Edwards a couple of times and we've chatted, but he seems kind of scatterbrained. He's got a lot of children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what's going on with him. But, um, you know, one thing that's advantageous, say, for the Catholic Church is being centralized. And having an archive where they've got archives that are literally the letters to Galileo saying, hey, knock it off with this, you know, you know, sun-censored universe and whatever else. And, like, they have those letters. They're sitting in an archive in the Vatican. Uh, and because rollerblading is becoming decentralized, uh, and this is something I've spoke to Lawrence about, you know, kind of the trouble that he goes to in his podcasts to put show notes mm. uh, where he's cataloging and reservoiring all of those, uh, you know, different things that get referenced. Here's an old picture of these skates. Yeah. Uh, or he himself is like creating a little mini museum of skates and people are now mailing him pairs of skates <laughs> and stuff like that. And, yeah. You know, here's a pair of oxygens, you know, here's a pair of K2 fatties and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a certain value, I think, in yeah. having the institutional memory. And it's the danger of the web. I remember reading an article. I'm going to have to go in a sec, actually. But um, uh, I, in, um, I read an article that was saying about, you know, one of the big issues, obviously, with digital archiving, um, you know, is that there's, uh, you know, if, if all the digital storage just collapses, then we just, you know, or like, you know, if someone prints a record uh, or a CD, on a hard copy device, um, even if they only do a 500 copies, you know, in their own, you know, paid paid for studio time, there's an artifact there that can be um, found and discovered and preserved, even if the digital platform goes bankrupt and vanishes. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And in the case, particularly of analog recording, like um, tape and uh, and actual vinyl. Um, if it gets corrupted, you can still retrieve some of it. You can string the tape back together and have patches of it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if a digital oh, yeah. file gets corrupted, it's gone, you know? Yeah, and, and it's all online and then online on a platform that vanishes. You know, that's part of the shame of, um, you know, all these great little reminiscences that Sessa Moore is putting up on Instagram, <laughs> Instagram is that there's this great backlog of history that he's putting up, but in, a, in such a... Um, a difficult, searchable, hard to pin down way, you know, and um, uh, yeah, you know, that, that stuff can so easily get lost. is a is a is a risk in a sense with this kind of two point especially digital based two point kind of internet age that we're in. Hmm. I need to start printing out pages of the internet, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I've been. What's his name? Um, uh, from back to blading, you know, said, you know, how would you explain what a um, a magazine is to the youth of today? You'd say a magazine is like someone printing out Instagram for you once a month and posting it to you. Um, yeah. mm, but there's something to that. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a value. It's 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 one of the things that you get for free, so to speak, mm. uh, with a you know hierarchical, highly centralized authority. Where, you know, if you have a lot of uh, really neat ideas taking place in some Baptist church in the south of the United States, 
and you know a flood happens that stuff's gone but these other things that are preserved in the vatican yeah be there at least as long as the building is there yeah and and one of the things that um uh that makes manuscript preservation possible is not only storing it somewhere but but multiple copies disseminating in multiple places because then not only do you have if one part of it gets lost, there are still other copies elsewhere, but you can even compare and contrast to see where corruptions right. to the text might come in as well. Anyway, man, I'm going to have to go. This has all I've been really fascinating, and I think all of the person who listens to the entire thing will um, find it very edifying. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so too. I'd like to think more about it and let this sort of uh, soak in for a while, and then maybe we could touch base on it again sometime in the future yeah i'd love that frank that'd be really great okay well yeah mikey it was it was great talking to you as always um i'll try to be in touch i know that you're going into your winter season so you know be sure to reach out if you have anything you want to chat about will do man yeah let's talk again soon catch you frank okay take care catch you man bye